A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I'm Chris Elias. I'm your host today. We've got another another great show um, lined up. I have with us today Joe Basile. Joe is the CEO of um, Catania Oils, a very large oil manufacturer um, on the East Coast. Um, the part that makes them interesting is they're a family business. I know that, that we get a lot of interest from people on family businesses and what to do. I, I myself was in a family business for a long time, and you know, there's certainly good and bad about it, but um, their story is really a wonderful one. I want to spend a little bit of time with Joe talking about the story, how they got to it, but also let's talk about the trials and tribulations of a family business and, and how to really control drive culture and really operate like a corporation because there's a certain point you can't just operate out of a shoebox anymore as we used to say in the family world you have to you have to get big and 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 just the old ways of running like a family business don't always apply uh so joe's with us to to share some of those stories i know his brother steven is going to be very jealous because steven's the you know in marketing and um would probably prefer to be the one on video and and sound with us today uh but but i've got joe good morning joe how are you I'm doing, Chris. Great, Chris. Thank you for having me. Great. So, you know what? Your, your story is a phenomenal one. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about the story of Catania Oils and how, you, you know, how you've gotten to where you are today. Sure, I'd love to. So, uh, our story starts out in 1900 when my great-grandfather um, immigrated here to America with uh, the American Dream. He wanted to start a family business, and, and when he got here, he used to go house-to-house selling gallons of oil, um, in the New England marketplace, Boston, particular, um, you know, from there, he got his son, my grandfather Joseph, involved in the business. So at a very, very early age, as a teenager, you know, he used to go to school. He'd bring a you know burlap bag with him to school with cans of oil, and then when school was over, he'd take the ferry and had particular you know routes, similar to like a, a paper boy, and he would go you know house to house, selling you know gallons of oil. Um, you know, over time. He eventually settled the business into um, a storefront environment. My great-grandfather passed away at a very you know, early age. So my grandfather was, I would say, 16 or 18 years old and um, was left with this, with this business. And he really settled it. Um, you know, he broke into the retail, the food service, and then eventually the food manufacturing aspects of the business. Uh, we were in some of the mass for about you know, 40 years. And um, as my you know, grandfather went through time, he had various, you know, other family members, cousins, brother-in-laws that he was in business with. There was a lot of um, territorial things that would happen back in the day, you know, similar to the, the Godfather stories that you would see to some degree. Um, share, share a couple of those. Sure. I mean, you know, there were some times and, you know, I would hear these stories, my brother and I, you know, as we were growing up in the business and going to work with him, you know, back in the 80s and 90s that, um, you know, he had a, like a, a route and he'd be going to upstate New York and it passed his, his enemy on the other side of the highway and you know, they'd pull over and they'd start getting in fights because, you know, you're infringing on my territory and stuff of that nature. I mean, you know, stuff that we just, I don't think today can, you know, truly appreciate. No, um, no. You know, back in the day when, you know, they didn't have a penny to rub together, um, you know, he would sleep in his truck. Um, they can, you know, 
sales calls up in Maine just to save money on a hotel. And, and he would have, uh, you know, the frostbitten nose to, to prove it years later. But, um, you know, through the years, um, as the business was really, you know, settled, um, the 60s and 70s, the third generation got involved with the business. And, um, you know, they were brought into the business from the, from the bottom up. They had to do whatever it took, sweeping floors. Um, I, I would say driving forklifts, but they didn't have forklifts back in their day. Um, a lot of manual labor. And um, those are some of the things that, you know, my dad, his brother, his brother-in-law will, you know, share with us and, and tell us how easy we have it with all the automation that the company, you know, has today. But, um, you know, back in their day, um, you know, they busted their butt uh, with the manual labor, you know, driving trucks, filling orders, um, filling orders by hand. And um, my, my dad's generation is really, you know, a generation that settled the business and, and moved the business to our current location where we are now in, in Air Mass. And we've been here for about, you know, 25 years. Uh, back in the early 90s, they made a, a pretty significant move where they bought some property and built a plant from scratch. And it was a, a massive undertaking. You know, back then we never, ever encountered something of that, you know, magnitude. Um, you know, back then we were, we were much smaller, you know, operation, you know, probably about 35 employees. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, being a kid, I was probably my teenager years at that point in time. And, um, we were brought into the business, a, a very call it similar way that my, my father's generation was, it was the bottom up. It was, you know, working weekends, after school hours, school vacations in the operation. And it was, you know, whatever it took, you know, sweeping the floors, emptying trash barrels, changing leakers, wherever help was needed. And that's kind of how you, you learned and, and got an appreciation for the business and, you know, what it takes um, to package the product that, that we do. Um, so that's kind of how the business evolved through the years. And, you know, as my generation went off and got educated, you know, through college. Um, yeah, which was unheard of for them, right? I mean, they, they wouldn't was, have considered you know, that. They, they really didn't have the opportunity to do so um, because the, the business, you know, it needed, it needed help. My, my grandfather was by himself and my dad and his generation, um, you know, that they had to go to work and, and uh, that's what was needed. And, you know, we were afforded the opportunity to, you know, go to college. And as we were exiting college, you know, we were going through some additional, um, you know, growth spurts around 2000 and, opportunities, you know, presented themselves for entry level, you know, positions. And, um, you know, over time, next thing you know, there's, you know, 13 members in the business um, that are working together. So certainly been, you know, a lot the last, you know, 20 years, a lot of the, the growth and automation has been, you know, added to the operation and the facility, as well as the, uh, the reinvestment and the build out of a more robust, call it, you know, senior team that has more expertise and experience in areas that are needed to, you know, support a, a business of our, you know, caliber today. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I have to tell so I want to go back in your story a little bit. There were a couple of things you said that really piqued my interest. You know, I, I, I think about stories that my dad and uncles used to tell. I mean, my, my, my one uncle um, shared a story once that, um, you know, kind of depression era, right? Pre-World War II depression. At one point, they were, they were so poor um, that they were, they were going to a store and their dad had given them a dime to go buy something. Back then, a dime would buy a lot. And they had, the, the, one of them had dropped the dime in the snow. And um, 
the one brother stayed by the snow while the other one went to get some matches to melt the snow to find the dime because that dime was so incredibly precious to him. And, you know, I think... I think living in that era, you know, the, 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 the early 1900s, um, you know, obviously, uh, if, if I think about the timeline, you know, you talk about your great-grandfather, your grandfather who, who found himself an orphan, let's say, or, or at least, you know, without a dad running a business at 16, that would have been in that Depression era. And um, it just, I think it's really, really interesting. I've got this image of him carrying cans of oil to school. I mean, uh, what, what kind of cans of oil? I mean, are we talking one gallon? I mean, how many of those could he actually carry? Yeah, I mean, they were one gallon cans, and I would imagine there was between, you know, 10 to, to 12 in the bag, the sack that he had. And, um, and how know, many pounds a gallon? About eight, about eight pounds, roughly. Yeah, so so he's walking around with a burlap sack with you know eighty pounds of oil through school, and then heading out and selling those just to feed his family. Absolutely, you know, there's so many times that I think we can look back and reflect on on those type of stories, and it's like, why do you still, why were you still doing it? You know, so many people would have you know given up. Yeah, but it was you know his call it love for the business and you know passion to to build something, which I think is what kept him going. Well, that's an important point. The passion to build something, that's an entrepreneurial spirit that, that we hear people talk about so often. And, you know, we'll hear criticism, you know, people today don't necessarily have it. They don't know what it's like to work. You know, you said it yourself, your dad, and I heard it from mine. You know, you guys don't know what it's like to have it hard like we had it. I mean, we've, we've heard those things before. But I think about even some of the... Um, you know, people that have won the lottery in technology, right? They, they come up with an idea and next thing you know, they've got investors and they've made millions of dollars and they haven't even launched it yet. You know, do people really know today what it's like to work just to feed your family? I, I think there are a lot of people in this country that do, but do they then have the fortitude? And what's it take in your mind? What's it take to really have that entrepreneurial spirit to, to, to go from nothing and really grow to something bigger? You know, one of the things that, um, you know, I learned, I think from him would, would be a, a statement or a saying that he would have, which, which goes like, I don't like cobwebs, what would be his mindset, meaning that, you know, don't stand still, don't ever be satisfied because by standing still and thinking that you're satisfied, that's when you get consumed. That, that's, that's when the competition goes by you. So that type of mentality and mindset is, has been something that's been, I think, instilled within the family. And taking that approach with everything that we do, you win a great sale, that's awesome. Celebrate it, absolutely. But what's next? Let's go. Let's keep moving. Don't, don't just continue to sit there and, and kick backs and, and think that you got it made and no one's hungrier than you. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes we call that the silver spoon kind of syndrome, right? The, the next generation of family businesses, I mean, um, you know, I mean, I can, I can think of examples um, in many, many family businesses that we've consulted with where, you know, they're, they're, they're in the second generation. They're trying to figure out how to survive. And, and what's happened is, is they have a group of people in the second generation that they're in the business because they were always expected to be in the business, and, and they're in the business because it was a very, very easy path, you know, and the passion doesn't really sit there. They, they didn't grow up with passion. So, you know, I, I, I've heard it from, you know, the kind of the depression era group that, well, we don't want our kids to suffer the way that we did. So, you know, we kind of gave them everything and we did whatever we could. And, 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 and they wonder why that second generation business starts failing. 
You know? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's something that um, you got to guard against. And, um, you know, with us, I remember when I was probably 13, 14 year old, you know, coming to the plant with my grandfather on weekends and, you know, we were installed at a very young age. You know, I didn't care. I didn't care what your name was, you know, who you were. It was get out there, you know, whatever the dirtiest job is, you go do it and, and go appreciate and understand, you know, what it takes for this business to function. What's your earliest memory of the plant? Um, I mean, geez, I've, I've been in the plant since I was under 10, um, you know, obviously not working, but, um, you know, hanging out with my grandfather or my dad. My, my grandfather would come here on weekends and we weren't running, you know, we weren't typically, we weren't running on weekends, but this was his baby. So he would literally come here seven days a week. And, um, sometimes he'd have friends that would meet him. So I mean, I remember coming to the plant, you know, seven, eight, nine years old and not necessarily doing anything, but just really spending time with them. And, um, you know, hearing those stories and whatnot over the years, you, you, you learn a lot. So uh, those, I think, were some of my earliest, you know, memories of, of the business. Yeah. Uh, at least being around the plant and, and whatnot. Yeah, I, I have memories. I, you know, you spark memories for me. You know, our, we called it our commissary where we, where we manufacture food. And the original footprint was fairly small compared to how it got built out. And I can remember on Saturdays, very, very young age, going with my dad to the office and sitting in his office or whatever. And, and you know, one of the funny things I remember is that there were these light, you know, these windows that allowed light in, but they were kind of colored blue. So the light that came down into the plant was, was this blue color when the lights were off. And it was just... It's just something that you never forget, you know, but, but the fact that, you know, on a Saturday they were working every bit as hard as they did on a Monday or a Tuesday. I mean, you don't, you don't see that today the, the same way you used to. You know, one of the memories that I have of my grandfather is he used to make wine and we, and we had a little bit of a wine cellar with an elevator. Yeah. And I used to remember, you know, going down there and it was pretty, you know, pretty cool experience, you know, certainly not something that we have here today. Um, but you know, back in the day, that was a really cool, you know, thing that he did and had his own little, you know, area in the building that he was able to do that hobby. Uh, you know, yeah, that, that kind of space is really amazing and, and um, always, always fun to remember. Um, you know, as I'm looking at, we're, we're kind of, the time really flies. We're almost coming up on our first first break here. So, you know, we'll come back in, um, in a few minutes. Um, but, you know, I, I want us to focus more and, and talk a little bit deeper than on that drive. I want, uh, you know, um, I, I, wish, I wish everybody on, on this sh- listening to the show right now could hear um, Joe's dad. I wish Joe's dad was on this call as well because just every time we speak, the passion for the business is there. Wouldn't you agree, Joe? I mean, that passion is. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think, something that, you know, a lot of the, you know, the family has, and, and that's important. Um, you know, without passion, you got nothing. No, you got nothing. And that gets instilled from really a, it gets instilled, instilled by example. You know, it's, it's, you know, you can talk about passion all you want, but if you don't show that passion, how do the people around you learn from it? Absolutely. I mean, actions speak a lot of than words. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna um, we're gonna take a little break. We'll be back with with Joe in just a few minutes, and um, you know, uh, enjoy the commercial break or whatever. We'll see you shortly. Thanks. True results happen where culture meets execution. 
The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Joe Basile. Joe, um, before we went to the break, we were talking about the importance of passion. And, you know, as I think again about multi-generational businesses, sometimes that expectation to come into the business, you know, it, it's just kind of what you do. And I, and I think for our dad's generations, you know, it, the world was a little different back then. I mean, um, you know, for your dad to come in into your grandfather's business and not go to college and all that stuff was great. But, but you know, how do you build a passion? It's one thing to just follow in your father's footsteps and do the same thing. But passion, passion is a real love for the business itself. How do you think that formed in your dad? And then, then I'd love you to share with us a little bit about, you know, your transition. Because, you know, you could easily just be following. You could be the silver spoon kid and following in your father's footsteps and not have the passion for it. What, is, what would it look like? I mean, that's, it's, I guess to some degree, a little hard to explain, but I think to some degree, um, as I sit here and think about it, you know, I think with my dad and his, his two brothers and sisters that, you know, it was really about their father and their father's, you know, sacrifices that he went through and, you know, seeing his love for the business. It was my, you know, grandfather's, you know, kid. It was his, it was his child. And I think, over the years, you know, they saw how passionate he was with the business. And as my grandfather got, you know, older and was trying to relax a little bit, I mean, the guy was working, you know, six, seven days, you know, a week. Um, it was my dad and his siblings, you know, duty to some degree to carry the torch, you know, continue that torch, you know, forward and, you know, put their mark on the business. And I think it's just the way that they were brought into the business, um, gaining, you know, the appreciation and the love of the business that ignited the fire in a sense within them. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, going through and working so hard and, and seeing, you know, seeing the company start to grow or seeing a nice sale or, whatever it is that that drives you and, and, and you feed off of that and you feed off of each other. And, and I think, you know, my dad and this, and the siblings, that's, 
that's what happened. And, and that's how they got the ball rolling. And, you know, it was, it was their baby all of a sudden. And, and as my, you know, grandfather was, was older and became, you know, ill in his later years, um, my generation was in the business at that, you know, particular point in time. Uh, some in college, some out of college, you know, some working full time, some not. Um, but his love and, and passion for the business, you know, lived on through the family. And um, that's, that was, I think, another thing that, that catapulted and, and passed on and instilled that passion in my generation. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I found is sometimes, again, in multi-generation businesses, and, and, and I'll preface this to say I don't want to get you in trouble with any of your family members. Um, you know, uh, sometimes that passion isn't equal across the board, right? I mean, I, I, again, I can probably share a lot of examples. I'll probably get some people in trouble. But, but places where, where people had passion for the business versus being there. Do you think all your, your dad and, and all his siblings all had the same level of passion? Or do you think it varied to some degree? And how did that affect um, the growth of the company? Well, I mean, obviously, that's one of the, you know, the challenges of having a multi-generational family business. Um, you know, passion runs runs stronger in, in some than it does in others. And, you know, it is what it is, and you need to find ways to, um, to work through those things and overcome whatever obstacles, you know, may exist. Um, you know, putting disagreements aside and talking, you know, purely passion, um, I think for the most part, at least in my family, you know, most of the individuals, um, you know, through the different generations, you know, share the same passion and desire for the company to succeed. Um, you know, some it's, it's, it's easier to come with yeah. others may may struggle or may get confused, you know, passion versus I'm expected to be this way. And I think that's, that's one of the things that is, that is different. It's one thing to have the passion and not be asked to display the passion versus, well, I know this is, this is expected of me or, having to be reminded to do something a certain way because, you know, of, of who you are. And, and I think that is what, you know, shows or shines in individuals with, with passion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I, I think allowing it to bloom is really important. I, I can think of a situation when, when, when I actually, when I first left the corporate world and started doing some consulting, um, a friend of mine who was, uh, you know, a partner at a big accounting firm, asked if I would consult with this one company that um, it, it was uh, started started by the father and he had two two adult kids you know he had you know his son and his daughter and he was looking to transition the business to these two and one of the things that I always challenged was not how to transition there are there are lots of professionals that can fig- help you figure out how to transition a business but whether it should be transitioned and he was absolutely dead set that his son was going to take this business over and they wanted me to coach the son and help him see the light, if you will. And the part that was crazy is that as I talked to the son and I even talked to the daughter, the daughter was so passionate about the business, had so much so much energy for it and just really, really loved it. But you know, it was construction and, um, and the dad just felt it should go to the son. And so the daughter gets ignored. He puts all this energy into the son, and the son was very candid with me that he wanted nothing to do. He didn't want to do anything in construction. He wanted to go find his own life. You know, he'd gone to college. He wanted to get into a different level of business. No passion at all. 
And lo and behold, guess what happens? You know, the, the daughter leaves and goes somewhere else because of her frustration. The son gets hold of the business and runs it into the ground. And it, and it, and it just goes. Because cause the, the, the passion, was, you know, the, the, the adult family members, if you will, the father in this case, didn't recognize where the passion was and, and where it should you know where the, the the change should occur and i think that's an important part of it as well because there will be different levels of passion there's nothing wrong with it you know don't force your kid in if they don't want to do it is is how i would look at it give them the opportunity to go and follow their passion passion is essential essential in success especially in an entrepreneurial business um so let's change gears a little bit if that's okay um, sure. so so passion obviously we could probably talk the whole show on passion but vision is important also I mean, you know, you guys started out door to door, right? And then, then you had a storefront and you were, you know, a delivery truck where you were just running things out of the storefront. Then came the decision, you know, a little bit later, generation or two later, to take the leap to actually build a manufacturing facility, which is sizable. Uh, how many square feet do you have right now um, all in? Between, between the two different buildings that we have, it's north of 250,000 square feet. Yeah, that it, that's just that's that's a, a ton. You guys have a tank farm where you bring in you know oil by the by the train load, not by the truckload, by the train load. Um, right. You've got you've got all this manufacturing and, and packaging capacity, um, but you couldn't have gotten there without that leap, that that visionary leap that that your dad took to say it's time to go something further. How important is that visionary leap, and, and where do you think that comes from? Because it would have been really easy for him to stay conservative and keep doing it the same way. Well, you, you talk about conservative. He certainly was, you know, conservative, you know, over the years. Um, you know, everything was, you know, small steps, which the small steps, you know, got obviously larger and larger over the years. But he was always very, you know, calculated, always looking ahead, you know, five, ten years down the road. Um, you know, our, our mantra has always been to reinvest our profits back into the business. Um, that's been huge. You know, the, the, the footprint, the automation that you've seen, the tank farm, the buildings, the equipment, all of that would not have been possible. There's no way we would have supported our growth if we continued to, you know, pull profits out from a distribution perspective every year. And that's one of the biggest things that my father and um, his, his generation and my grandfather um, did with the business. It, it was to continue to make the business grow and and provide employment opportunities for, you know, additional family members too over, over the time. Um, but it was always, you know, it was always about driving and never being satisfied to go back to our earlier conversation and my grandfather's quote that I don't like cobwebs, not being satisfied, not being complacent and continuing to change, continuing to move forward. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what's driven us. So at that time, when you, when you built the plant, um, you know, just prior to building the plant, the plant, what was your reach, and what, who were you supplying, and and how you know how how kind of much of the country or that region of the country were you covering? So that that would have been the early nineties. Um, you know, we had a regional brand at, at retail. Uh, private brands at retail really didn't exist. I mean, if it did, it was extremely small. So, back then. so hold on, hold on. So just for our listeners, what's the difference between a retail brand and a private brand? Sure. So um, a company that has their own brand, they own uh, manufacturer's brand, what I'm referring to. Um, private brand, or which is also called private label, 
Um, that's typically like a retailer's brand, so a, a reseller in a sense. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to move away from that terminology, private label, that sounds call it generic. So their, their brands, you know, they're, they're real brands that you see today in supermarkets. And, you know, that's kind of known as, as private brands. So private brands would be your local grocery store's name on a product. It may just be their, their banner, their company's name. Got it. Or it could actually be a brand that they created. Got it. So, so for instance, um, yeah, just kind of pulling at some straws here, but, but Kroger has private select. They're not necessarily manufacturing private select. They're they're hiring a company like yours to do the private select packaging of oils or whatever. And and Absolutely. versus yep. the Catania brand, which you have names that you've had through the years, which are actually you put them in the bottles that go right to the grocery stores. Okay, so um, so at that particular time, you guys were just you guys. If I understood the the, the point, you guys were just um, doing the retail. Were you doing restaurant sales as well? Yep. So, so back then, um, we had three, call it distinct divisions. So retail, where we were solely brand, uh, food service, which we had our branded presence as well. And there really wasn't much private brands being done at food service at that particular point in time. We were very regional. And then we had our food manufacturer, which is us selling oil as an ingredient to a manufacturer, someone that is making, you know, snack foods, salad dressings, mayonnaise, bakery products. So those were our three, call it, distinct divisions. And we were very regional, northeast for the most part. And um, that's that was the atmosphere. That was the company back then. And so at, at some point, you know, you guys kind of maximized where you were at. And, and your dad your dad could have said, you know what, let's just be the best we can be. But but he wanted more. Yeah. So, so where we were is we were in building in some of mass and we bought all of the surrounding buildings that were attached and we were landlocked. We were in a, you know, a, a an alley, uh, four loading docks, not much room to maneuver trucks in and out of the facility. Um, because of our business, because of our supply chain, we need to be on rail. So we're limited with where we can go. We have to have direct rail access to the plant. So you're right. We were in a spot in time, and it was a multi-floor plant with elevators. So certainly not very efficient. So um, they had a decision to make. They either had to be satisfied with where they were from a business perspective um, or want more. They wanted more. And so how much more now? So, so here you are, you have your plant, and um, you know, is your dad still driving vision? Is there more to be had? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, he's still a very big part of the business, as is the other members of the third, you know, generation. Um, you know, although today the fourth generation is running the company on a day-to-day uh, basis, but um, you know, their love, their passion for the business is why they still, you know, come here every day, and, and they're still part of things, and um, they want more, and and it's our job to push things forward and. What's, what's nice about it, I think, from my perspective, is it's, it's a great soundboard. They're great mentors. Um, we're not just pass the torch and it's, you know, no support. So we've, we've had that um, great call it partnership over the last, you know, handful of years as we've taken the lead with the company. 
we're making a lot of the big decisions and, and everything else, but they're still a very big part of the place and, and, uh, and that's special. No, that's excellent. And so when you think about them as mentors and you, you mentioned the third generation a few times, you know, the generation just, just beyond yours, your dad and aunts and uncles, um, are all of them active in the business or are some of them on the board or, or how does, how does that shake out now? And how, how do they act as mentors? I mean, all of them have, you know, different, um, different things that bring to the table from a mentorship. They're all still very, you know, active in the business in some shape or form. Um, so there's, there's still, there's still miles left in the tank Yeah. Um, with, with the generation. And when the time's right, you know, for them to, call it slow down. Um, that that's the balls in their court relative to that. Um, I don't expect or think, you know, any of them are going to just walk away either because this has been a big part of their life. And all of them have children that are still active in the business on a full-time basis. And, you know, they, they may be able to enjoy life to some degree and slow things down and whatnot. But, um, this, this is not a place that you can just walk away from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we experienced that as well. You know, with the, the older generation, there was no such thing as really retirement. I mean, honestly, you know, they, they have so much of their lives wrapped into it. What are they going to do if they retire? I remember once my uncle um, telling me, you know, I, I asked him if he had any hobbies and his answer was, uh, what hobby? I mean, this this is my hobby. This is this is what I love. I mean, and, and I'm sure that that was kind of the same for, for your dad. So maybe, Joe, when we come back, we'll talk about your hobbies. Anyway, uh, we're at another point point to take a break so uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like optimize your life your team and your organization through clarity purpose and action at Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Joe. Joe, time is flying. Um, I I love these conversations. I am kind of curious. So what are your hobbies, given that I just kind of tossed that out right at the end there? Any hobbies for you or your dad? Sure. I mean, uh, I'm into... uh, Men's Hockey League, so I play hockey uh, still. Um, my wife always yells at me because once in a while I come home with a new, you know, injury. Had my teeth knocked out at one point in time with a puck getting bounced off of it. Um, but, you know, enjoy hockey, enjoy um, coaching my kids, soccer. 
um, golf when you can. You know, time is always always tight, so mostly golf experience is really you know, tournaments through work. Um, but yeah, you know, hobbies are good; they're important. It's it's good to, to do things of that nature. Um, my father certainly had his share of hobbies growing up. Um, you know, he was avid into you know baseball, softball, golf. Um, he got into the whole Red Sox fantasy camp and did that on an annual basis and, you know, thinks he's, uh, you know, some all-star player because he's had his share of injuries as well. So now he's got two new hips and yeah. whatever else, but uh, that's not going to keep him down. You know, he enjoys, um, you know, getting out there and, and having fun. Yeah, I, I honestly, you know, we joked about, you know, you know, the hobby is the business and all that stuff, but you have to have something that breaks breaks the mind away. I mean, you've got to, you know, and, and, and people will sometimes argue, but if you don't have a chance to, to kind of reset and rejuvenate your brain and do something that's that's out, you can't always, you know, optimize for the business itself. So actually, I'm, I'm happy to hear those things. So I have this image of you standing in front of an all-hands meeting or an all-employee meeting missing two teeth up front trying to, <laughs> trying to talk. I think that that would be uh, really kind of something almost funny and, and enjoyable to watch. Well, maybe not enjoyable for you. I, I don't think I want you to go through that. But uh, They get a laugh out of it. That's all that matters. So, um, you know, kind of one other thing I was hoping to address with you is company culture. So, so today... Okay, your family business has gone through all this growth that's gone through this tremendous history. Um, the history is very, very important. And a, a company that's over 100 years old has a culture, has an established culture, and family businesses can have very, very powerful, really great cultures. And yet some really do a great job of translating that culture throughout the organization to the non-family members who work there and others don't. Um, Tell me a little bit about your culture. You know, sh- share with us what your culture is like, and how do you how do you kind of get everybody engaged in that same culture? You know, I think it's one of those things where, to some degree, it's it's you know, y- your culture is, is so important to the success of the business. And you know, with us, you know, it's important that you know we lead by example. Um, really try to connect with the employees on a, on a personal level. Um, my my grandfather. My dad, his generation, our generation. It's important that you know we're visible, we're on the floor. You know, people. You got to connect with them, and, and that was something that my grandfather really excelled at. He was an amazing people person, and, and he would take the shirt off his back to to help you out. And I think those are some of the values that have been you know passed down through the generations. So you know, having that type of atmosphere where you know, it's a family business, sure, and our employees are part of the family. And when you talk about culture, you talk about core values and going through that exercise and trying to understand, you know, what are our values? What is our culture like? And build out the, the formality of, of core values and talk about them with the employees as far as, you know, we are family and being focused on the job, and being focused on the company and the customers are so important. Okay, so it's it's one thing to um, it's it's one thing to really state what you want, but it's another thing to actually enforce it and drive it. Right? I mean, how do you take a guy who's operating a machine or operating a forklift and make him feel like family? Honestly, it's it's show attention. It's so easy to walk by and and not even acknowledge or say hi, or ask them how their day is going, or know their name. Those little things 
make a huge difference. And that's what our culture, that's what our atmosphere is like. You know, my dad, his brother, myself, we got no problem walking into the production area. You know a lot of the people by their first name. Um, you're sitting on that production line. You're watching it run. You're kind of seeing what's going on. And sometimes, you know, stuff's going to happen. You're going to have, you know, a machine breakdown. You're going to have bottles that need to be reworked, whatever it is. You can sit there and watch them. Or you can roll your sleeves up and give them a little bit of a hand. And it's the little things of that nature that, that make the difference. Yeah, you know, um, knowing their names is a big one, for instance. So um, how many people do you have out in your plant? It's about 170 total in the company. 170 people. It's hard to know everybody's name at, you know, at that point. And yet, you know, I think about it and, um, I've heard this story multiple times when, when you know everybody on a first name basis, it really does help engage them. It does. I mean, and it's, and it's, it's not easy. Um, you may not know every single employee, but knowing a vast majority of them across all the different, you know, job functions is, is so important. So how, how often do you walk the floor? Not as much as I'd like to, uh, two to three times a week. You know, my, my dad, when he's up here, it's every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have multiple shifts? We do. We, we have three different shifts. Um, you know, you, you try to get out amongst the different shifts because that's important too. It's, it's certainly not easy. And if that means that you need to get up at three or four o'clock in the morning and, you know, stop in and check on people, then that's what you do. Have you ever had any managers um, kind of take exceptions? So, you know, it's, it's really funny, but, you know, culture can get driven kind of top down. And yet I've seen some situations where some middle management kind of gets freaked out at the, you know, the, the, the owner walking the floor. Yet my guess is, is you're not out there managing. You're not out there telling them what to do. I mean, what, tell me a little bit about what walking the floor looks like. What kind of conversations do you have with these guys? Are they more personal? Is it just connection? You know, what are you actually talking with them about? And, and how do you keep your managers engaged without them feeling like you're kind of stepping in or stepping around? I mean, I think a lot of it is the approach. I mean, a lot of times I think the conversations are centered around, you know, personal stuff, how you doing, what's going on. Um, but also keeping in mind that, you know, sometimes we have projects going on and if we have a new line going in, a new modification to the plant, you know, happening, um, you might be checking in with the engineer, the actual operator on the floor, hey, how's this working out? How's it going? You know, hearing from them, um, you know, a lot of times it's, it's the approach. If you want to go around and, and, you know, complain about every little thing that you see, then you're going to get that reputation and you're going to probably do more damage than you do good. Yeah. So I think our perspective is you're better off. You know, look, if you, if you see something and if something is really that important that you call it out, okay, you, you do so, but going, you know, pulling the manager aside politely, Hey, you know, I, I saw someone on the floor over there. If you get a chance, you have someone cleaning up, you know, things of that nature is how you best approaching that type of situation. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned earlier core values and, and, and I'm going to guess that those behaviors that you're describing are reflective core values really for everybody. Um, what are your core values? We are family is our number one, you know, core value, you know, being a family business. Um, we are family means, you know, so much. So we are, we are family. We have customer focused, authenticity at our core, job well done and own it are the five you know, core values that we live by. Got it. And so how do you, how do you enforce and build on that? So, so share me a little bit more about how you've been instilling those in your organization and how does that shape the type of organization that you have? 
I mean, with us, it's it's something that was new that we introduced about two years ago. Um, it's so important that when we communicate, whether we communicate in person, we communicate via a letter, a memo, a video. You know, we try to reflect back and give specific examples of, of core values. Um, anytime that you can kind of go back and reinforce specific examples and recognize that, hey, this was a job well done. Um, also, obviously, there's times where negative stuff, you know, happens, and it's also used as a reminder being, you know, look, we're supposed to be customer focused here, and, you know, what occurred, that wasn't being, you know, customer focused. So everything that you do is, is built on reinforcing, you know, hiring and firing by the core values, um, as well as just continuing to make sure that we communicate with the employees as such. So hiring and firing to the core values, uh, I mean, I assume that, that if you, you know, if you recognize some behavioral issues, you're trying to fix those first, but, but that firing piece is hard when it's behavioral for some, for some people. I mean, you know, what, how, how do I ask the question? I mean, how do you, how do you figure out that it's time that somebody really isn't a good fit for your organization anymore? I mean, I think what it really comes down to is it's one thing to have, you know, something occur. And you have to have a conversation and we are all, you know, for, you know, allowing individuals to have, you know, chances to redeem themselves and to recognize that there's a better way of doing something or I made a mistake or I, you know, failed to follow our process or, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's kind of when you find yourself, you know, back at that situation, you know, multiple times that it's probably apparent that they don't have, you know, the core values or don't share the core values that the company has. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's just a point where where it's just not worth the effort anymore, and if it's creating especially a toxic situation, um, you got to make a move. There is uh, one other thing though, and so one one of the things that we often we, we preach a lot in in my world is probably one of the biggest reasons, um, the biggest reason actually that you'll have a core values problem with a person is you hired the wrong person to begin with. So, you know, if you really think about it, if, if you really want a core values aligned organization, it really starts with hiring properly, right? If you don't bring the right people in, it causes a problem later. And it's no easy task, is it, to find somebody that's got the right core values? Not at all. I mean, it, you, you wish that there would be some uh, magic test that they could take and uh, all is well. Yeah, I, I, true, true, very true. So, so without the magic test, what kind of things do you guys do to try to identify or understand if somebody's a good fit for your organization from a value standpoint? I mean, honestly, you got to do what you can, you know, through the interview process, um, you know, going through and talking with multiple, you know, individuals within our company and, you know, being able to, you know, ask some pointed, you know, questions and try to see if you can identify um, if they have core values or not. I mean, it's, Certainly not an easy task, and you know, unless you are really, um, you know, good at it, it, it isn't. It isn't easy. Well, and and I know you've you've put a lot of time into this, and there's no real clear answer. Um, but you know, if we try to come up with an example or two, let's let's pick one of your core values. If I recall, one of the first ones that you mentioned, we are family. I mean, that that gets to the that really gets to how you treat each other, right? If I if I if if, if I had to make a guess and a leap based on just those words. What, what might you be looking for? What might you be asking to, to determine if, um, if somebody has that value? You know, one of the things that we say, um, you know, one of our senior members of the team, he'll, he'll look at it and he'll say being others focused. And that's kind of his, you know, his vantage point of we are family to some degree is it's not about me. It's about others. 
And if I can be others focused, and if I can influence and impact others in a positive way and be willing to, you know, go to my peers and support them in, in ways that would be reinforcement of, um, we are family is, is what it comes down to. If it's, you know, all about me as the individual, then you don't have that, that value. You're, you're too self-centered and self-serving, which is not what we're about. So one of the things that you're doing is as you're asking questions about, you know, asking questions to the person, you're actually looking for kind of how they respond instead of what they're saying. So if, if, if the response is a lot of I, 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 or me, 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 versus, um, you know, and us, you know, my team or people I worked with, et cetera, or, or even if it's a more personal question, if they're talking about, you know, family versus individual time, you're, you're looking for ego, you're looking for, you know, the kind of things that might be red flags that say they don't have that, that value or they might not. Absolutely. I mean, it's easy to sit here and say, you know, with a resume, I did this and I did that and so on and so forth versus I, you know, I, you know, me and my team or I led the team or whatever it may be. But that, you know, that's certainly what you're looking for. Yeah. And it's not going to be perfect. I mean, but the idea is, is to narrow and take the time and try to find somebody. How, how much longer do you think it takes to find somebody with the right core values versus just hire somebody with, with the skills and the right resume? I mean, it's, it's, probably twice as hard, I would, I would say. I mean, it's, you know, certainly even harder today um, with the way the labor markets are. Um, you know, it's it's a constant struggle. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I know, uh, again, for our listener base, the East Coast in particular, um, companies there really seem to be having a hard time with people. I mean, I, I know we're having a hard time everywhere with getting people and acquiring and all that, but um, as somebody who's, who's talked to and worked with people all over the country, um, especially, you know, you know, New York, Massachusetts, that part of the world or that part of our country seems to, to be a real trick. Um, you know, uh, this, you know, I don't know if you got any fun or, or, or maybe not so much fun stories, but, uh, give us, can you give us an example of, um, a new hire that, you know, what did it look like hiring somebody that really had the core values? What did it look like in their performance and how it worked? And then maybe give us a story of one where you blew it, right? You, you got somebody in and they really didn't have the core values. And, and, and what did that look like? Oh, geez. So you want, you want a story about somebody with, a, with core values that, that didn't work out? Yeah. You don't no have problem. to name names. No problem. Um, I mean, I remember we hired someone in the finance area as we were building out. Um, you know, the, the team from a depth perspective, great guy. Um, you know, I think he aligned very nicely with, with the core values. Um, we didn't formally have, let's say, core values back then, but thinking about what they are now, um, certainly would have been in alignment with the core values, but the, the, the skill wasn't where we needed it. And um, I think, you know, back then, it was just due to some degree our lack of, you know, HR and, and having individuals in place that could properly understand or, or vet um, somebody that would be appropriate for the, for the job. Um, certainly not a fun call it, you know, position to be in, um, but it's tough. You have, you bring somebody in that aligns with their core values, but um, the skill set isn't there. You know, it's, it's the right core value, but maybe it's the wrong seat they're in. in a sense. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's that's kind of more of an example of a mishire from the skills standpoint. But yeah. okay, so um, actually, I'm going to change gears real quickly with something you just said. You said you know before you had an HR department, we've only got a minute or two left. But um, you know, last week's show was about the importance of strategic HR as a function. You, you know, in the past, 
just personnel was good enough, hiring and recruiting. But this concept of true strategic human resources and bringing the right people in has become really important. Tell us how, you know, tell us a little bit about how you guys handle HR today and, you know, how did you get to where you are? Sure. I mean, you know, prior to HR was you had a, you had a heartbeat, you're hired. Um, you know, certainly we recognize that without having someone in that seat, the, the turnover was, was rather high and, you know, getting the right people to support the business is, is so crucial. Um, and it is so costly, you know, the, the amount of money that you spend today with training and thinking about how much automation is in the business, both from a computer perspective, whether it's a, a desk job or a job on the line, there's so much automation and technology, the amount of training that goes into employees um, to get you into the right uh, level of service for the business is huge. So every single person that you hire that is not the right fit costs you a lot of time and money. So having a, a strong you know, HR group and doing well on the recruitment side is, is so important. So we've you know, certainly embraced and recognized that over the last, I'd say, you know, eight to 10 years, and it's been a very important piece of the business. Well, and I think without even saying so, whether you realize it or not, your dad and grandfather, you know, to a great deal, I'm sure they didn't keep people around who weren't passionate about the work and didn't have the right values. I mean, you know, we tend to do that naturally just by being more clear about it. We can give ourselves more purposeful action. Well, um, actually, we're out of time. You know, and I'm sorry to say it. I wish we uh, wish we had more time to go a little deeper, Joe. And and um, who knows? Maybe we'll be able to kind of circle back. Maybe we'll even see about getting Stephen on. I, I know that he would love that. But um, you know, it, it was great. I mean, it's good to hear some stories. I mean, it's really clear that for entrepreneurialism, in particular, passion and sticking to what you want is so incredibly important. Vision, driving for that. But but as you grow, the right people in your organization aligned to your culture become essential. And I think that's those are all the key points that you touched on. Absolutely. I appreciate the time today, Chris. Sure thing. Well, um, thanks everyone for listening. Um, appreciate you being on the channel with us again today and um, look forward to having you join us next week. And until then, um, have, a, have a great week. Work hard. Stay passionate about what you do. Thanks. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a good week.